I want you to grab a Bible because there's some things I want to talk to you about this morning I think that are very important. I want you to go to Matthew 3. Matthew 3. And then in your program, there should be a note sheet. You'll want to grab a pen uh, because I think there's some things worthwhile writing down. I want to talk about something that hopefully uh, will be meaningful to you. Uh, we're in this series. And the series that we're in, we started last week, and the series is called Jesus in Between. The reason we're doing this series is simply this is because people are infatuated with, and I would even dare say familiar with, the holiday Jesus. People are infatuated with and familiar with the holiday Jesus. Now, that might beg a question, like, Dan, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, people are familiar with, and I would even say fascinated with, and really, really like the Christmas Jesus. Can we hear it for Christmas Jesus? We like Christmas Jesus, right? Uh, we like Bethlehem, we like manger, wise men, shepherds, and we love Mary, Joseph. We love Christmas Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? Can I, yeah, I need you to talk to me today, okay? It's early, all right? Here's the deal. We like Christmas Jesus, but we also like Easter Jesus, right? And Easter Jesus we're very familiar with because we, we know about the trial of Jesus. We know about the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, many of us familiar with the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. We are very familiar with, infatuated with, the holiday Jesus. But what we know is this, is that baby that we're fascinated with, something had to happen in between because he was a man at the cross. And here's what happens if I'm somebody who's fascinated with and maybe even stuck in the holiday Jesus mode. If I'm not real familiar with the in-between Jesus, then i got to make up that Jesus. i got to make up. I wonder what he was like. And listen close to what I want to tell you because I think this is true. There are a lot of people who reject Jesus because they've been told about a Jesus from someone else. That isn't even the Jesus that's depicted in the Bible. They're rejecting a Jesus that's not even true. Can I even say this? This is maybe scandalous. There's some people who are following a Jesus that is simply a Jesus that is made up there that somebody told them about. And what happens is when I have to make up Jesus in my mind, it can lead me to a lot of crazy conclusions. Maybe conclusions that look a little bit like this video that we have for you. See if you don't recognize this. That looks like Dear a good Lord, supper. baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and <laughs> the always delicious Taco Bell. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, your <laughs> golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo T-shirt. Because it says, like, I want to be formal, nice. but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. <laughs> I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus, like, with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with, like, an angel <laughs> band. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce... <laughs> 
Newborn infant Jesus. That's good. Obviously, there's some confusion there about Jesus, right? How many ever seen that movie? Anybody ever seen that movie? That's not new with you? All right. Yeah, interesting. Well, if, you, if that's how your prayer goes today at lunch, maybe we ought to talk afterwards, right? But the truth is, a lot of people are confused about Jesus. So here's what we talked about last week. We said we've got to start somewhere. And, and where we ended was this, and I want you to hear what I'm going to say so we know where we're going. Where we ended last week was this, as we begin to understand Jesus, one thing Jesus doesn't give us the luxury of, he doesn't give us the luxury of being neutral about him. Uh-oh. Jesus does not give us that luxury. The, the luxury isn't for us to say, you know, Jesus was a good man, he was a moral teacher. Jesus does not ever give us that luxury. We said it this way. Either Jesus was a huge liar, or he was crazy, or he was exactly who he said he was. He was either a liar, or he was a crazy man, a madman, or he was exactly who he said he was. And so here's where we end it. Jesus, Jesus is this unusual, weird paradox. A paradox is just two apparent contradictions. And so we said Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he's full of grace and he's full of truth. And then we end it by saying this, that I either will fully receive him or I fully reject him. Jesus doesn't give me an in-between. And so one of the passages we looked at last week was found in the book of Hebrews. Now, you don't need to turn there. We'll throw it on the screen. But it's going to get us where I want to go today. Hebrews 2, this is what it says on the screen. And I'm going to ask you to participate. So can you do that? Wow, I don't have a lot of confidence. Can you do that? All right. I need some help. Okay, here we go. Hebrews 2, verse 17. For this reason, he, that's Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement, that's going to be key later, for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was, everybody say that word out loud, tempted. tempted. He is able to help those who are being, say that word out loud, that's what we're going to talk about today. So Hebrews 4 says this, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one, that's Jesus, who has been, say that word out loud, tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Here's what we're going to talk about. Jesus, fully God, fully human, was tempted in every way like us. And so therefore, because he was tempted, he's able to help us in our temptation. Now let me just get something out of the way. I have been a pastor for about 25 years, and so I get this question or comment when we talk about the temptation of Jesus. I have people that will come to my office and they'll say, there's no way Jesus was tempted exactly like me. Jesus did not face the exact temptations that I face. And what they mean by that is specifically Jesus doesn't face the very same temptations. And can we just say this for the sake of getting it out of the way, that, that to an extent I, what they're saying is correct, right? Jesus was never tempted with online pornography. Can we just say that? I mean, can we just make sense of that? Jesus was never tempted to overspend online. Jesus was never tempted to binge watch Game of Thrones, right? Jesus was never tempted to eat too much ice cream. Jesus never tempted. So I get what you're saying. But here's what I want you to remember, that all temptation has its roots in common ground. Remember that. All temptation has its roots in common ground. That's why a guy named Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's on the screen. No temptation, right? That's what we're talking about today. Has overtaken you except what is common to man. 
And God's faithful. He's not going to let you be tempted. There's what we're talking about. Beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he also will provide a way out so that you can endure it. So Jesus, fully man, fully God, was tempted in every way like us. And so therefore he can help us in our temptation. So here's what we're going to look at. Okay, here's what we're going to look at for the next few minutes. We're going to look at the passage, the story in the Bible, where Jesus was tempted. Now for some of you, this is going to be a familiar passage. And here's my hope that we'll look at it in a way that maybe you've never seen it before. That, that we'll look at it and maybe pull out things you've never seen before. Because here's what I want to do. I want to learn in this passage some things about Jesus. I, I think in this passage we're going to learn some things about us. And then we're going to learn some things about temptation. We're going to learn some things about Jesus, us, and temptation. Matthew 3 is where we've got to start, okay? Matthew 3, look at it with me. Follow along. Or if you don't have a Bible with you, just follow along on the screen. Matthew 3 Verse 16, here we go. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Everybody look here. If, if I'm you, I'm sitting there thinking, Dan, I thought we were talking about the temptation of Jesus. And we just read about the baptism of Jesus, Right? And so it's a little confusing, right? So important. Why did we do that? Well, first, this is just interesting to me. In this passage, we see the entire Trinity together, right? We see God the Son being baptized. We see God the Spirit lighting on him. There's this sign of identification. And then we see God the Father pronouncing on him, This is my Son. I am pleased with him. That is key. Because the timing of the temptation of Jesus is interesting. Because chapter 4, verse 1. You with me? Uh-oh. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay, that's better. Now I feel better, all right? Chapter 4, verse 1. The very next word says, then. In the book of Mark, this is also in the book of Mark, the word Mark uses is immediately. That literally right after Jesus is baptized, right after this moment we just read, in fact, a guy named Russell Moore, he wrote a book, Tried and Tested. You ought to get it and read it. That's where I got a lot of information. It's a great book. He says it this way. He said, Jesus' hair is still wet from his baptism when he's led out into the wilderness. I love that, right? That immediately, Jesus was, everybody look with me at this, led by the who? Spirit. That's interesting. He's led by the Spirit. Well, I thought Satan was all the one that does temptation or whatever. Listen, Jesus, this, makes, this passage has got a pop for us. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be, there's our word, tempted by the devil. That's interesting. we got to get a hold of what's going on here, and I want you to see this. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. There are several key words. Then, right after his baptism, immediately, he was led by the Spirit. This was something God was leading him into. And then the key word in this passage is tempted. And I want you to know something about that word. I want your Bible to begin to pop, because if we don't see this, it's not going to make sense what's happening. The Greek word, you can forget this, is parezo. You can forget that or impress your friends with that. But that word literally means this. It's not just to be tempted to some sort of external sin. It's not I'm tempted to steal a cookie out of the cookie jar. That's not all that word means. Wrapped in that word, parezo, is this word tested. It's not just tempted, it's tested. And here's what the word means. 
The word means not just I'm tempted to do something external that might be wrong. It is a word that says that there's going to be a test that's going to reveal what's real, what's true inside. That's what the word means. Can we just say this? Can I get your cooperation on this? That, that, that many of us maybe went to school and we didn't like tests. How many of you didn't like tests? Can I get an amen on that? I'm like everybody, okay? I want you to say this with me out loud. Tests are not bad. Everybody say it with me. Tests are not I don't believe you meant it, but they're not bad, right? Tests are not bad. You know why? Because they re reveal what's true. Like I could walk into my geometry class and say, I know all the answers. Until my geometry teacher said, well, then let's take a test. And what does the test do? The test reveals what I really know, right? I, I, I could tell y'all, I could tell y'all, hey, you know something, Steve? I've been training for a half marathon. I can run a half marathon. You might believe me. I might convince you until you came to me and said, all right, let's test that. Why don't you line up and let's run 13 miles? Can I just tell you, I would not pass that test today, all right? You see, a test reveals what's true. Think about it. I could tell you I'm patient. I am the most patient man you've ever met. That's easy for me to say on this stage while you all are cooperating, but it's another thing. When my patience is tested. You see, when my patience is tested, that's, what, that's when what's real begins to get revealed, right? I can tell you I'm, I'm the kindest guy you've ever known until that kindness is tested. Now, stay with me. This is going to, okay, we've we got to go here. I could tell y'all, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, grew up in church, and I'm... I got the t-shirts, the bumper stickers, bam, I'm a Christian. One thing to say that, right? Until all of a sudden that begins to get tested and what's real begins to get revealed. And that begins to help this passage pop for me a little bit. Because here's what happens. In chapter 4, verse 2, it says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, we almost read right past it. I'm going to read it again and just go there with me. Put color on it. Let it sink in. After Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, that's a long time, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Did you see what happened here? Here's what's going on here. I want to see three things that are happening here in this little passage, in this little verse. What does Satan do right off the bat? He goes right after Jesus' identity. At Jesus' baptism, what did the Father say to him? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. What does Satan say? If you are the Son of God. Right away he goes after his identity. If you really are the Son of God, right? And then you see what he does. He doesn't just go after his identity. He goes after his appetite. Go figure, right? Because Jesus had just what? Fasted for what? 40 days and 40 nights. Anybody in the room ever done that? Anybody ever done that? I've never done that. It almost makes the next part of the verse funny to me. It's like Matthew feels like he had to include, he fasted 40 days and, and 40 nights, and just in case you wondered, he was hungry. It's like, really? You know? Like, like I think I would change the vowel. I would take the U out and put the A in there. I'd say, he's hangry, right? Like, I'd have been angry, hangry, right? Like, he fasted. And so what Satan does is he comes right at him. He's in the wilderness. He's alone. He's hungry. And he goes right after his appetite. And this is what he says. He says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Everybody look here a second. Look, look. 
can, can we just allow this to be a little bit weird for a second? Satan doesn't ask Jesus to do something violently evil. Like Satan doesn't come to Jesus and say, why don't you go murder somebody? Satan doesn't come to Jesus and say, why don't you do something that's vicious and evil and atrocious? He doesn't do that. He comes and he tells him to do something that doesn't seem all that bad. I'm hungry. God made me with this ability to experience hunger. And he says, if you're the son of God, you're hungry. God made you that way. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? That doesn't sound that bad. Eating bread's not bad. Jesus was born in a place called the house of bread. He was called the bread of life. Bread was not bad. It makes you wonder what is going on here. And all of a sudden, in order to understand what's going on, you've got to remember that very back at the beginning, that Satan enticed someone else this way, enticed someone else to see something that was pleasing to their eye and was good to the taste, that God said that's forbidden. And all of a sudden, you begin to get an idea, what in the world is Satan doing here? Because he looks at Jesus and said, if you really are who he said you were, God the Father, if you really are, then why in the world are you going around here hungry? Shouldn't you just turn these stones into bread? Because certainly you don't have the power to do that. What's the test? Here's the test. I want you to write this down. It's, it's so important. I see a lot of young people in the room, and so this is so key, what I'm getting ready to talk about. The test, the very first test, I think, that we see in this passage is this. Satan is testing Jesus, and he'll test us to satisfy our appetites apart from trusting God's goodness. What Satan is doing, he's saying, if your father is such a good father, why are you hungry? And what he's saying is, why don't you figure out a way to satisfy your appetite and do that apart from trusting the goodness of God to provide? Stay with me on this. You see, what, what Satan is doing with Jesus and he does with us is he's trying to get him to focus on satisfying his appetite and maybe mistrusting what his mode of operation is, is I want to be suspicious that God's good. And here's why this is so important, because we all got appetites. Can I get an amen on that? We all do. We have appetite for relationships. We were made that way. And some of y'all were single. And I, I meet with a bunch of young adults, and here's what happens. We have this appetite to want to spend our life with somebody. There's this appetite to want to marry somebody, to have somebody to call our companion for life. It's an appetite. We've been created with this appetite. But for some of us, we haven't found that person. And so it's like it feels like 40 days, 40 years, maybe. It feels like a long time. And, and, and there's this temptation to say, man, I don't know if God's going to come through. And, and I've been waiting around for somebody who loves Jesus and following Jesus. But, but it sure doesn't seem like God's going to come through because I'm hungry. I want somebody. I meet people in my office all the time. And I think I'm just going to go satisfy that appetite because God certainly isn't going to come through. You see, that's the way Satan operates. We have appetites, and his, his mode of operation is to cause us to want to satisfy those appetites in a way that says, I don't think God's good. I don't think he's going to come through. We have appetite for relationship. 
We have appetite for sex. And I meet people all the time. It's like, oh, wow. It's like, man, I so want to experience that someday. And nobody's come along. And I'm not married. So I think what I'm going to do is satisfy that appetite. Because God's not going to take care of it in the way that, 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 that I thought he was going to. So I'm just going to satisfy it. See how that works? See, Satan's sneaky. He's tricky. Not only that, but some of those appetites we have are, are good things. They're not bad things. Nothing wrong with bread. And, and Satan's mode of operation is to somehow cause us to take good things and make them ultimate things. To make them the ultimate thing in our life. You see, when I think about Satan, he doesn't operate the way a lot of us think he operates. Sometimes when we think of Satan or like the temptation of Satan and the testing that comes, like he comes with these horns and 666 and it's, you know, like that. He doesn't, he doesn't operate mainly that way. It makes me think of a story that I heard from the guy who wrote the book I mentioned later or earlier. He was talking about a lady, I believe her name was Temple Grandin. Maybe some of you heard it. There's a documentary out about her and you ought to watch it. Uh, she is a highly functioning autistic gal. And she has been employed by uh, the beef companies, McDonald's and others, right? And she's been employed by them to go and inspect and work with them on their slaughterhouses. Now you're like, where are we going with this story, right? Because she has this unusual ability to be able to pick up on the sounds and vocalization of cattle as they're, they're being slaughtered. And she would go to these uh, slaughterhouses and these companies and she would beg for them to be more compassionate. Because what she began to understand is as the cattle were being ready to be slaughtered, she could hear the stress and the trauma. And as she heard the stress and the trauma, she not only wanted compassion, but the CEOs knew that stress and trauma would release a hormone into the cattle that would affect the beef. And so the CEOs hired her. They said, we want you to come and help us create more compassionate slaughterhouses. That's an interesting story, right? But we also would like better beef. And so they hired her and said, what do we do? And this is what she said. Listen close. It's so interesting. We're going somewhere with this, I promise. She said, well, if you wanted to do this in a more compassionate way, what I would do when the cattle get off the truck, I'd create a squeeze chute so that there's pressure against the cows as they come off so that they feel warm and nurtured, almost cared for. And then she said, I would tell your hired hands not to yell at them. Don't whip them. But I would just simply encourage them to herd the cattle. And then she said this, the sharp gates that you have that lead them down this pathway, she said, take those away and create a windy, sloping, curvy pathway. And she said, that way the cattle, as they go, are going to feel like they're headed to a pasture about to eat. Temple created this conveyor belt. She created this conveyor belt that literally would lead the cows off the truck into this chute along these winding pathways. As the cows would go, there was no trauma, there was no stress, none of that. So eventually they got to the very end. And on this conveyor belt, they very subtly would be lifted off their feet. Boom. See, when I heard that story, I thought that more often is how Satan works. He begins to lean into our appetites and he begins to lean into our desires and good things even. And little by little until, boom. 
It's what makes Jesus' response pop for me. Look at what it says, Matthew 4, 4. Jesus answered, it's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This has always confused me. Just be honest. Maybe, like, here's how I learned about this growing up. Maybe, maybe you learned it this way. That when Satan attacks, just memorize Bible verses and bam. Hit him with a little spiritual jujitsu, man. Like, boom, I'm going to give you a verse, right? It's like, and like, I read this and I'm like, wow, okay. Did Jesus just start quoting verses? No. No. You know what Jesus knew? Now, this may surprise you. Jesus knew Satan knew his Bible. And can you think of another time in the story of God where the devil showed up and used food to cause a couple to mistrust God? Yeah, the whole story starts that way. Can you think of a group of people who traveled not for 40 days, but for 40 years in the wilderness and began to grumble because they didn't have enough to eat? You see, what Jesus does in Matthew 4 is he's quoting right from Deuteronomy 8, which is right out of the passage where the Israelites are in the wilderness. And this is what Jesus is quoting from. Let's put it on the screen. Deuteronomy 8, you've got to see this. It begins to make it pop. Deuteronomy 8.2 says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Look at this. To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Bam. Listen, we got a race. Okay, we got a race. That clock is against me. We got a race. Look here. Sometimes, and you may be there right now, we go through a period of fasting. Sometimes we go through it by choice, but sometimes we go through a period of fasting not by choice. The thing we want, the thing we desire, the thing our appetite yearns for, it's like we, it's not there. And sometimes that time of testing is an opportunity to reveal, am I going to trust that I have a good father? I want him to give it to me now. And in those times of fasting, am I going to trust that I have a good father? Now, Satan does something interesting here. The very next thing he says to Jesus, verse 5, is this. Look at this. Then, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. This is interesting. And look at what he says. You see what he says? He says, if you are the son of God. That sounds familiar. Then Satan says, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands. So that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Everybody look here. Said, Satan is quoting from the Bible. Psalm 91. I just want you to know that. But everybody look here a second. I, I, I just, I don't know how you read the Bible. Can we just say... Like you read this, sometimes we read the Bible and we don't think about it much. We just read it like that's the way. There's a part of this that's kind of weird. Okay, just, just look at me and say, you okay with that? Like there's a part of this that's weird. Just shake your head if you're with me. You with me? Like, like I don't know if you understand what I mean. But imagine, imagine, I used these guys last night. Imagine these guys were an accountability group. Like, like this is what's weird to me, okay? So, so these three guys over here are an accountability group. So occasionally, maybe you have an accountability group. You sit in your group, and you sit there and say, hey, man, here's what I'm struggling with, right? So imagine these guys sitting in their group. And imagine one of them saying, you know, I struggle with pride. And the other guys are going to be like, yeah, I got you, man. I do too, and we'll pray for you, and we'll be there for you, and this, that. 
And another guy might say, you know, I struggle with, 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 with not telling the truth. Oh, I know, man, sometimes you're just a fudge, right? Another guy might say, I struggle with lust. I'm like, I got you, man, and we'll be praying for you, and I'm there with you. If one of those guys in that accountability group, as they're sharing, says, you know something? The thing I really struggle with, I really struggle with wanting to climb the tallest building in Barberton and throw myself off the building and see if God's going to catch me. Can we say that's weird? Can I get an amen on that? It's like, it's like I can't understand what's going on because that's not really something I struggle with. Until you peek into this deeper and there's something really fascinating. There's something really fascinating going on here. Because when you peek a little closer, you see Satan goes right after Jesus' identity. He takes him to the very place that represents the presence of God. He begins to quote right from the Bible, Psalm 91. And here's what he's saying to Jesus. Listen. Okay, this is how subtle it is. And my guess is every last one of us in this room have had this battle at some point in time. What he's saying to Jesus, stay with me. He's saying, prove the Bible's right. Prove the Bible's right. He's saying, I want you to prove the Bible's right because he knows something and I know something about you because we all like to be right. Can I get an amen on that one? Come on. And yeah, somebody going to clap about that. Okay. And we all like to be seen as right. We don't just like to be right, but we want to be seen as right. That's why some of our marriages struggle sometimes. We want to be right all the time. That's why some of our relationships struggle. We want to be right all the time. And can I just tell you something? Can we just say this? That sometimes our need to be right and more importantly seen is right can get in the way of us doing what's right. I'm going to say it again. Our need to be right and seen is right can get in the way of us doing what's right. You're saying, Dan, help me understand it. I'd be happy to. I used to coach football. Some of you know that, right? Coached for 14 years. I had a guy one time ask me this question. He said this. He said, you ever seen a referee make a bad call? I've never seen a referee that didn't make a bad call, okay? I'm just going to tell you how it is. But I was in a particular game where I had this happen. My team was 5-2. and two. We were going to play a team that was 7-0. and oh. So they run defeated. My team had two losses. And so my team, the big victory for my team was we were going to go destroy their season. We're going to mess up their season, right? And so I got my team ready. My team was ready. My team was fired up. We're going to go into their house. We're going to win this game. We worked really hard, practiced really long. We were ready. We got there. My team is all fired up. They're fired up. And we go out for the coin toss, and we lost the coin toss. So we're going to kick the ball off to them. That means they're going to receive it, okay? I said, no problem, we want to start on defense. Everything, I'm going to make a positive, right? We want it to be on defense. So they got the ball on about the 35-yard line. And, and for those of you who understand anything about football, I just did this, which means I sent the house because I'm going to get them right off the bat. I wanted to get this game under control. And so I sent linebacker, everything like that. And so they, they said, hike. Quarterback got the ball, he handed it to their running back, and my guys just destroyed that guy. And all of a sudden, that ball popped up, fumbled it. And my guys recovered it. We went crazy. That's exactly what we needed to get this game started right. We had the ball. We're going to beat this undefeated team. We got off to a good start. I was celebrating, dancing, chest bumping my team until I heard the referee. He said, hold on. Hold on. I said, hold on what? He said, we're going to replay that now. I said, we're going to re-what? He said, we're going to replay that down. I said, 
I'm sorry, sir, you're going to have to tell me why we're going to replay that down. He began to explain to me why we were going to replay that down. I've never heard anything like it before or since. Now, I'm just telling you, this is, can, can I confess for a minute? I was a pastor at the time. I'm glad he didn't know that because I came unglued. I came unglued. I said, we're going to, what? I got my team all fired up, and they got a fumble, and we started just the way we wanted to. I came unglued unlike I ever had before or since. I began to chirp in this guy's ear. I began to say, you got to explain this. I went out in the field. He said, boy, you better get off the field. I threw my hat. It went out in the field. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to get out of the game, right? I, I, I was so fired up. I was so frustrated. I began to talk to him. I wanted him to know I was right. He was wrong. I was right. He was wrong. He did what was wrong to my team. I had the right understanding and perception of this. And it wasn't until halftime that I realized I was so focused on being right in his eyes that I had quit coaching my team. See, I think that's what Satan is doing here. Why wouldn't Jesus throw himself off? Guys, think, just think about it a lot. Why wouldn't he do it? The Bible's right, isn't it? Yep. Jesus is right, isn't he? Yep. Why wouldn't he throw himself off? Because Satan accurately quoted part of the Bible, but he strategically left part of it out. I want you to see the rest of it. Psalm 91, look at it. Satan said this, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. And this is the part he left out. You will tread on the lion and the cobra, and you will trample the great lion and the serpent. You see, here's what Satan was doing. He was subtly trying to separate God's word from God's purposes. He wanted Jesus to throw himself off, and Jesus knew that somehow that would be divorcing himself from the whole reason he came. You know why he didn't throw himself off that temple? Because you weren't there. And because you weren't there. Because he had yet to go step on the serpent's head. Jesus refused to show himself to be right, to convince him the Bible's right at the expense of accomplishing his mission. I want you to write it this way. Test number two is simply this. Test number two, I think Satan tests us this way all the time. Prove you are right instead of accomplishing your mission. Jesus knew he could try to prove to Satan he was right, and yet he would be doing it apart from the heart and mission of God to rescue you and me. This is a temptation that we all face. Some of you are facing it in your marriage. You're facing it in your marriage. And so your need to be right and seen as right somehow is your primary focus and it causes you to stop loving and leading your family. Some of you are seeing this in your friendships. Some of you are seeing this at work. Some of you work with people who don't buy into the Bible and it frustrates you because they don't have the same political view you do. They don't have the same worldview you do. And so here's what happens. I got to prove to you the Bible's right and you got to get it. And your desire for them to see that you're right and they're wrong can even supersede your desire to see them come to Christ. See how that works? Let's be honest and go here. It's a little ouchy. But we can see this all across our country in churches. 
as a group of people, our need to be a group of people that is seen as right and to be vindicated, to be vindicated so that everybody sees that we're right. So our guy got elected, our issue got passed, so everybody sees we're right sometimes surpasses our desire to see our culture come to Christ. You see, Satan's subtle. Satan's subtle. And our need to be right sometimes can shipwreck our passion to pursue the purpose of God. That's why Jesus said, don't put the Lord your God to the test in verse 7. He just simply quotes from Deuteronomy again. And he's saying, listen, the only way I'm going to respond rightly to this is if I get God in his right place. Satan's desire is that we would see, stay with me on this, that we would see God as a genie in a bottle. If God's a genie in a bottle, then his job is to accomplish my mission. You tracking with me? Rub the bottle... God, I need this. And I think what Jesus is saying is, no, no, God isn't a genie in a bottle. He's a king. And if he's a king, you know what we are? We're his ambassadors as followers of Christ. And as ambassadors, we have a mission. And our mission isn't always to be seen as right. Our mission is to invite people to know a God that loves them and died for them. It's interesting, isn't it? Which leads, and we'll go quickly through this, which leads to the very last of the tests. And then we're done. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And Satan says to him, all this I'll give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Now, everybody look here, I, I don't know if I'm just weird, but I read this stuff and like that seems weird to me too. Right? If you're in that accountability group, can we go back there? And somebody says, I struggle with pride, gotcha. Struggle with lying, gotcha. Struggle with whatever, gotcha. One of those boys said, I struggle every night with this goat-headed figure coming to me saying, bow down to me and you'll be able to take over the world. We're probably going to send him to St. Thomas or something like that, right? Like, that boy needs help. Can we just say that? Yeah, like, like we read this and like, I don't know. Like, most of us in this room are like, I'm not really... I'm not really tempted to bow down to Satan. Like, that's not really my temptation. Now, there are people who, who are, right? There are people who are. But, 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 but in the room here, we're probably like, that's probably not my temptation. Like, what's going on here? Well, here's what's going on here. At the garden, Satan convinced Adam and Eve, stay with me on this, so important for you to know this. Because we read, I've read this many times, heard preachers preach on it, and it's like Satan's going to tempt you, just memorize the Bible and nail him with the Bible. There's so much more going on here. Because at the garden, Satan convinces Adam and Eve to shortcut God's plan, not trust God's goodness. And as a result of their willingness to submit to him, now Satan is called, in your Bible, the prince. The prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. And he is standing off with Jesus, who is the king that was promised. And so here's what Satan is doing. Don't miss this. He's saying, okay, I'm prince of the power of the air. I'm the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. He's looking, he said, you know, I convinced Adam and Eve they didn't pass the test. He's looking at Jesus, the one who came, the, the promised king. And he said, listen, you just do this thing. I'll give you all the kingdoms. I'll elevate you right now. Don't miss what's happening here. He's saying, 
You can be elevated without having to pay the price at the cross. You can, can, can have exaltation without having to go through the humiliation. What's the test? Listen, before we throw it on the screen, the test is something that is so prevalent 21st century in this country. It is so prevalent in churches. It is so sneaky. It's so subtle. And maybe even you've embraced it. I don't know. What's the test? I simply think the test is this. I think Satan is saying to Jesus and he's saying to us, hey, why don't you pursue a Christianity without a cross? He's saying right now you can, you can set up your kingdom. I'll give it all to you. You don't have to go the whole way to that cross. You don't have to go through all of that. You see, here's what's sneaky about Satan. I'm going to tell you something. And, and, and then we're done. Satan. Satan. This might get me an email. My email address is jrios at graceohio.org. You with me? But I'll take that chance. Fill, fill my box up, jrios at graceohio.org. Satan isn't all that concerned if we have a Christian nation that embraces Christian values. Satan's not all that concerned if that Christian nation that embraces Christian values is all about external conformity to a bunch of religious rules as long as there's no internal transformation that comes because of the power of a cross. Oh, can I talk, talk to you about this? Satan doesn't really care if your kids are good kids and you impress everybody with how good of kids they are and even they have a bunch of Bible memorized. As long, he's fine with that. If your kids are good kids and moral kids and ethical kids and even if they know a lot of Bible verses kids, as long as your kid never gets to the point where they understand they're a sinner who needs a cross, he's like, I'm fine with that. Get the t-shirt, get the bumper sticker. You see, Satan has no problem if we have a Christianity without a cross. Satan has no problem if we have Christian books that give us ten steps to becoming a better person, to finding a better life, as long as it doesn't take us the whole way to a cross where there's power, and it's the power to change and forgive. You see, here's the deal, and I'm done. This whole story... This whole story is interesting to me because of the way Jesus responds after that temptation. Verse 10, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus looks at Satan and he's done quoting verses. The very next thing he says is, Away from me, Satan. And then he says one more verse. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here's why this is interesting. Because there's one other time where, where Jesus used that very same verbiage. It's found in Matthew 16. I want you to see it. Matthew 16, he's talking to his disciples. Verse 13. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. He looks at, okay, what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So here, verse 21, Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the 
the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now check this out. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, never. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and looked Peter square in the eye and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, here's the thing. And then I got to be done. Jesus would stare that snake king in the eye one more time. He would stare that snake king in the eye one more time and he was stapled to a Roman cross. And you know what? On that Roman cross, he refused to satisfy his appetites at the expense of trusting God's goodness even when they stuck a sponge up to his mouth. And he resisted proving he was right. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have proved, I'm right, you're wrong. He, he resisted proving he was right as he hung underneath of a mock sign that said, King of the Jews. Because he knew something. He knew that the only way for him to step on the serpent's head once and for all, and the only way for him to be able to invite you into something that had the power to change your life was for him to go through the cross. Jesus passed the test. The test Adam failed. The test the Israelites failed. The test many times we fail, and Jesus passed it. And it tells me something about Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one to pass the test. He's the only one who has the authority, the credentials, to hang on that cross for the sins of all of us who didn't. He is the only one who has the credentials to do that. Have you ever said yes to him? I'm not asking if you've gone to church all your life. I'm not even asking if you embrace Christian values. Satan's okay with that. I'm saying, have you said yes to Jesus? I'm as serious as I've ever been. Have you ever said yes to Jesus? I'm not asking if you're a churchgoer, if you're moral, if you're religious. I'm not asking that. I'm saying, have you ever said yes to Jesus? Because he stared Satan in the eye and he passed the test. And therefore, he's the only one who has the authority, the credentials to die in your place, in my place, so that we could be forgiven and invited into his family. See, it tells me something about Jesus, but it tells me something about you. And me, you know what it tells me? That if you're here in this room and you have said yes to Jesus, listen up, if you've said yes to Jesus, your hair will barely be wet with your baptism. And you can count on the fact that you'll be tested. And testing is not bad. It reveals what's real. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this. It's interesting. Let's throw that on the screen. He says, you ought to even examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? You see, here's the, th here's the deal. Testing's not bad because it reveals what's real. And when it comes to testing, it begs the question, well, what do I do when I face temptation and testing? Okay, this is so key. What do I do when I face testing and temptation? Do I just memorize a bunch of verses and start spitting them out randomly? It's good to memorize the Bible, don't misquote me. But I don't think that's the point of the story. What do we do when we face temptation? We say yes to Jesus. We trust Jesus. We follow Jesus. He's the only one that stared the devil in the eye and passed the test. 
I'm going to tell you something. Saying yes to Jesus as my Savior is how the whole journey begins. But when I say yes to Jesus as my Savior, I'm saying, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior, and I want to say yes to you every day, every moment, the rest of my life as my Lord. I'm going to trust you. My appetite isn't satisfied. Are you really? I'm going to trust you. No one's come into my... I'm going to trust you. Everybody is against me, and I just want to prove that I'm right. I'm going to trust you because I'm on a mission. And even if that means I'm going to take up my cross, because the one who would not have a Christianity without a cross said, now follow me and take up your cross and follow me. Because there is no exaltation without submission. 